Welcome to episode 131 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. That is uh, just for this uh, episode only, uh, a new musical intro. It is a artificial intelligence version of a Beatles tune. Uh, and, you know, not bad as a Beatles tune. Better than that, uh, a lot of, uh, well, Keisha's songs are pretty good, but uh, uh, there's a whole bunch of uh, uh, bad pop dance singers, uh, and uh, you know, pretty soon we'll let this, I think we ought to give credit to uh, Sony CSL uh, Lab, uh, uh, which came up with that, uh, and uh, you know, we, we, we can look forward to years of new pop music from the Beatles. Not bad. Okay, uh, uh, our guests today are Matt Cutts and Lisa Wiswell from the Pentagon's Digital Defense Service. Defense Digital Service. Uh, um, Matt joined Digital Service from Google, where he was the SEO king uh, and uh, the abusive, um, abusive uh, uh, SEO uh, king, uh, and. Uh, the guy everybody went to when they couldn't figure out how to fix a problem that they had with Google. So uh, welcome, Matt. Thanks for having me. Uh, and Lisa Wiswell is actually a Pentagon uh, uh, veteran, I suppose, for at least for a few years uh, from the Office of Policy, but now running or half running the uh, uh, Digital Defense Service. Uh, running a couple of their security programs, yeah. Terrific, terrific. Well, we're going to have a lot of fun talking about uh, what the digital, uh, the defense digital service does. Uh, I, and uh, uh, what I invite you guys to do is participate as we do the news roundup. If you if you think we're just getting it wrong, we'd love to hear from you. <laughs> uh, uh, our um, news roundup will be brought to us by Jennifer Quinn Barabinoff, a partner in our litigation practice who has dealt with a variety of uh, uh, class action and breach notification litigation. Uh, and Michael Vadis, formerly with the FBI and the Justice Department, now a partner in our New York office. Uh, Jennifer, welcome. Thanks so much, Stuart. Happy to be here. And Michael, uh, glad to have you here as well. Hey, Stuart. How are you? Very good. Uh, and I'm Stuart Baker, uh, formerly with the NSA and DHS, holding the record for returning to step to practice law more times than any other lawyer, something like four or five. I can never quite keep track. Uh, um, let's jump right in. Uh, Microsoft uh, has come up with a strategy for building data centers that uh, um, is apparently designed uh, pretty directly to um, uh, say to uh, the U.S. intelligence agencies uh, and law enforcement as well, you're not going to get this data. You're not ever going to get this data. Michael, uh, how, how effective is this particular approach to, uh, to data center uh, um, isolation? Well, for starters, I don't think Microsoft would admit that that was its main intention. Uh, I think there have been a lot of pressures on uh, cloud service providers to set up their data centers locally so that they fall under the data protection regimes of uh, whatever locales they're in, um, which gives assurance to people, to their customers, that, you know, whether it's German law or UK law or Swiss law or whatever, that that those apply. So I think that's that's what they would argue is the main intention. But didn't they didn't, um, they, didn't also, they go out of their way to, to say, you know, look, we're we're washing our hands of this. We can't get access until some independent third party uh, allows us to. Uh, uh, that certainly sounds like they're doing more than just uh, assuring uh, customers about which law will apply. Yeah. Well, you know, what what I said was that I don't think Microsoft would would can see that that's what their main goal was. But it is part of the salesmanship job of, of convincing people to uh, that their data is safe if, if it's not accessible to the, the long arm of, of U.S. law enforcement and intelligence services. It's interesting that they've done this, even though they, they ended up with the surprise win in the Second Circuit that said that the U.S. Uh, law enforcement can't get access to uh, data stored abroad just by serving Microsoft with a search warrant here in the U.S., you know, it may not be as necessary as it would have been had the Second Circuit gone the other way. But I think this legally, I think this is pretty effective since it's the, the service operated under a German company 
that I'm sure is structured in a way that makes it uh, legally independent from Microsoft. So Microsoft would argue if served with a search warrant or with a subpoena that it doesn't have possession, custody, or control over the customer data stored in Germany or in the UK or wherever else it's setting up these Azure uh, cloud services. You know, I'm sure it'll get litigated, but they've certainly put themselves in a stronger legal position under U.S. law. Yeah, so belt and suspenders for Microsoft, uh, both designed to thwart U.S. government uh, access to to data and build their market in uh, in Germany in particular. Uh, so um, well, let me uh, quickly cover, speaking while we're in Europe, uh, a, a piece of litigation that we're involved in, so uh, uh, take that into account. Uh, but Jen has been uh, uh, running that, uh, and it ties to the uh, uh, European uh, effort to improve U.S. government uh, standards for data protection, um, particularly for European nationals. Uh, Jen, can you give us the 60-second version of this? Sure. We filed a lawsuit under the Judicial Redress Act, which is a statute that was passed in February, went into effect in May, on behalf of... uh, Gilbert Shiguri, he is a wealthy Nigerian businessman whose name has surfaced in connection uh, with some of the WikiLeaks and other press about uh, donations to the Clinton Global Initiative, who uh, had information about uh, his visa application uh, for travel to the United States being uh, denied allegedly uh, on uh, based upon his alleged support for terrorist organizations. And that was leaked to the LA Times. So he denies that uh, he has any connection to terrorism and that it's, it's not uh, an implausible uh, denial. Uh, it, the legal argument here is under the Privacy Act, or at least one of them, uh, uh, which he could not have taken to court until the Judicial Redress Act was adopted. Correct. So what the Judicial Redress Act essentially does is it extends the protections of the Privacy Act, which allows um, U.S. citizens to um, go after the government uh, for civil damages, to file a lawsuit seeking redress for damages as a result of leaks of private information and also under certain circumstances, to seek to have inaccurate government records. Here, this would be any record suggesting he has terrorist ties, to have those records corrected. Well, you're very kind not to point out that um, uh, I've been pretty critical of the Europeans and their data protection authorities over the years, uh, uh, and now they have bailed out uh, one of my clients and offered him an opportunity to uh, to bring a lawsuit he couldn't have otherwise brought. Uh, uh, so uh, uh, irony ab- abounds. Uh, so uh, let's let's get into the big story of the week, which is that uh, you know it's the the number is five hundred million different accounts compromised two years ago. Uh, these are Yahoo accounts. Uh, Yahoo announced uh, last week that their accounts had been uh, 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 compromised two years ago by a nation state. Uh, uh, but as late as early September, they had said, we don't think there are a breach, any breaches. So there's lots of attention. There's a lawsuit already filed. Uh, three. three now. Okay. Sorry, I'm out of date. Yeah, yes. Right. One day. Three <laughs> within a day. <laughs> um, and, uh, because they're in the process of being acquired by Verizon, um, there's special attention to this about what it might mean. Uh, uh, and I have to say, I think some of the speculation is a little florid. This is this is a breach case, but you know, uh, one of the things that also came out last week was uh, um, a report that said, you know. You can spend millions of dollars, five, six million dollars on a data breach. Uh, uh, and that's the average if you count the really large recoveries, but that the median expense of a bre- data breach is like a couple hundred thousand dollars. Uh, uh, now this will be a big one, but it's not going to be so enormous that uh, it can't be handled in a deal negotiation, it seems to me, where you just say, I'm putting aside some money, um, and if you have to spend it on data breach after you take me over, uh, that'll come out of the price that you're paying me. Right. Most of the press seem to suggest that it's not going to make the merger go sideways. And I think the, the RAND study that you're mentioning is very interesting uh, because it also came out at the same time as a study of general counsels that said that 40% of GCs, as you said, have, have already dealt with a data breach. And it ranks very high on their list of concerns. They ranked it their number two risk to the company. 
Uh, but if the median cost is only $200,000, that raises a lot of concerns, uh, or questions, I guess is a better way to say it, about how much money should people uh, be spending to uh, sort of prevent these kind of breaches, when in some cases it really seems like where you have state-sponsored act- actors, it really, they may almost be inevitable. Uh, and so... Uh, well, I- and <laughs> interestingly... Um, if you have state-sponsored actors who are breaking in and stealing this stuff, the likelihood that they're going to be able to show injury to this class strikes me as pretty low. Uh, I don't think we've ever seen the Anthem data that was stolen allegedly by the Chinese show up in any uh, criminal fora, which means that nobody su- suffered from any identity theft. So what are their damages? Right. Well, I mean, there's at least one of the cases has uh, raised a Stored Communications Act claim, which is, is raises the statutory damage issue again, uh, which is something that they'll have to just sort out in the aftermath. Yeah, but, you know, they just settled one of those cases and they, they settled it because they were able to show that the damages of the parties are going to be <clears throat> different in each case. Right? right. And that means there's no class. And that then you basically pay off the lawyers, you pay off the class reps and you go home. Right. I mean, that's the hope that defense, the defense bar spin on the whole Spokio situation is that in order to get the concreteness of the injury that you're going to need to show to get standing, you're going to basically end up blowing up your class because the more specific that you are about your concrete, to satisfy your concreteness uh, requirement, you're going to wind up being more unusual. Uh, and there's going to be a harder, uh, harder for you to kind of draw a group of, a circle around a group of people that his experience is similar. I think if you believe the RAND study and those new numbers, it may be that that a data breach is more a case of head lice than a heart attack. It's incredibly embarrassing, and you wish there were a way you could prevent people from knowing that it was you that that caused the problem, but there really probably isn't. And uh, in the end, it's going to cost you a couple bucks and some embarrassment, but it's not going to be disabling. And my advice to um, general counsels, embrace the baldness. (laughs) Okay, uh, another record set uh, this uh, uh, this week uh, was the DDoS attack on Brian Krebs. Uh, uh, he he had the largest DDoS attack in history launched against him after he had written a couple of stories that resulted in the uh, arrest of a couple of people who were basically doing DDoS as a service, uh, and. Uh, um, it, Somebody, maybe one of them, one of their confederates, or maybe somebody who just was their fans, uh, launched this massive attack on uh, uh, Brian. It uh, threw him offline because the people who'd been giving him uh, pro bono uh, protection from DDoS, because, you know, he's in the business of uh, trolling DDoSers, uh, they said, this is so big, even we can't handle it, and is starting to, to... back up on our other customers, uh, and we're going to have to cut you off. Uh, he's gotten some help, I think, from Google, didn't he? Yeah, actually. So uh, he just mentioned that he's now under the uh, the Shield, Project Shield, which Google is uh, a free service that Google runs for journalists and publishers to ensure you know protection against DDoS and uh, freedom of speech and that sort of thing. So it was actually a good match, but uh, he wrote an interesting post about the democratization of censorship, which is an interesting read. And he's absolutely right that uh, um, we started out thinking that we were going to impose our values on the rest of the world uh, through the technology. Uh, And what we're discovering is that uh, uh, other people get a vote in that and have found ways to impose their values on our speakers. Well, and as you have more and more devices that are not secured, you know, the the Internet of Things, which might be DVRs, it could be out-of-date routers, that's a larger attack surface where people can use that to amplify attacks. So this is really... Everybody knows IoT security, Internet of Things security sucks. Uh, And people have ideas about how to fix that. Uh, uh, But those ideas had not focused on preventing the Internet of Things from rising up and attacking Brian Krebs. Um, And now that we know that that this can be done, it it really raises the stakes for crappy security in in the (laughs) Internet of Things. It does, and it's it's interesting because there was another piece that came out this week from the Harvard Business Review that talked about how good cybersecurity can be good marketing. And there's pros and cons to that, but I think 
if security becomes a higher thing on the agenda, that can only be good. So to take the Krebs thing and tie it into another thing, um, there was an open SSL security advisory that just came out in the last week. And I think they had 14 vulnerabilities, including one rated high, uh, which the high one could enable essentially denial of service because of a memory leak. What was interesting to me, and again, I'm just speaking for myself personally, I'm not speaking on behalf of the digital defense service, the defense digital service, or, uh, or my, my, uh, my time at Google. But uh, there was a project started at Google called Boring SSL. I saw that. And so the and idea that was, was after after SSL has sort of gone into we're, we're going to uh, uh, take SSL and turn it into essentially an open source utility. Uh, and then there was a variety of forks and things around that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I and then Open SSL seemed to have you know won the day. And now we're seeing more forks. What's going on? Well, it. It, this is just my personal interpretation, but I think uh, because of some of the attacks you saw a couple of years ago, the idea of boring SSL is to take open SSL and refactor it and try to reduce the complexity and start a smaller attack surface, more maintainable, so that SSL is literally boring. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of neat because apparently out of the 14 bugs that affected the open SSL advisory, none of those actually affected boring SSL. And so, no kidding. Now, yeah. the, the thing that was really bad was an attack on the substitute for revocation lists for certs. And, and, and uh, I, I used to know, I, knew, I remember revocation lists and mm-hmm. I remember that they didn't work because nobody checked them. Right. Uh, uh, <laughs> and what's the, what was the substitute? Uh, I forget whether that code had just been factored out, whether it was an older uh, thing or essentially a, a large part of the, as I understand it with Boring SSL, is you can say, hey, you know what, this, this code path isn't used that often. These, these protocols are not used as much. And so take that out, try to slim down the code, oh, and you end up with fewer could, possible could be, ways to It could be that it would be different between whether you are actually a certificate issuer, in which case you have to respond to these questions, have you revoked this cert? Uh-huh. Uh, or somebody who wants to use SSL, in which case you don't need any of that uh, infrastructure. And if I were writing something to make SSL more boring, I would not give the cert authority code to 98% of the users. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of those kinds of changes that you can make. And and so it's pretty interesting because there was also a piece, uh, Netflix just did a blog post where they're moving to encrypt their video streams. And you you can consider whether that's a good idea or, or not, but, but <laughs> leaving that aside for a second, they, they compared OpenSSL to BoringSSL and ISA-L, and both BoringSSL and ISA-L were 30% faster than OpenSSL. Yeah. So what's interesting is you can move to a world where, yes, people are putting security a little more foremost because it helps with marketing and it helps with perception, but also there's a little more choice and security actually protecting users more. So you know, it all of these things takes years to deploy, but it could be the case that some of these appliances might get so more let me, robust. Let, let me launch my rant. Uh, <laughs> I, I think Google is the principal example, but there are plenty of others uh, of um, a kind of crypto derangement syndrome in which people believe that crypto will solve all their problems. And SSL is at the heart of this. Uh, the The idea that every communication on the net needs to be SSL protected is silly, isn't it? I mean, take Netflix. Uh, um, What what Netflix is doing is making it impossible for somebody to wiretap you to find out which particular movies you're watching. Totally true. But and, and, at and, the same know, time, that, you know, it's not like they have the kind of movies you should be ashamed of. <laughs> but, uh, but, but Robert Bork certainly would say, you know, which video quality that derailed his Supreme Court bid. Well, didn't so. it didn't, no, it didn't. Actually, okay. everybody okay. was upset that that no. some ideologue had gone and asked what movies he watched. Uh, those those are kinder, gentler world. <laughs> uh, now we wouldn't be the least bit surprised right. if uh, uh, Blumenthal had gone out to find that out. Uh, but uh, uh, so they passed the law to say, we'll never, we'll never have that again. Uh, which, you know, uh, uh, one of one of the rules that I uh, have yet to articulate as a formal Baker's Law is, it's not about privacy, it's about porn. But I, in that case, I think that people were worried about their, their viewing habits. But really, you know, the idea in the United States that you would do a, a, an intercept just to find that out, and, you know, it's, it's crazy. Or even, frankly, that governments would do it in, in fairly authoritarian countries. So um, 
the only reason to carry the overhead here is because it's you know fashionable to have everything be SSL. I just I just don't see any real risk that somebody is going to be disadvantaged because of a lack of encryption on their choices at Netflix. Mm. I, I, it's interesting because I, I'm a big fan of encrypting as much as possible of the web. So there's there's a fun book by Cory Doctorow called Little Brother, and it paints a dystopian future in which, you know, bad actors are able to watch what you're doing online and, and exploit that. And after reading that, I think a few people at Google said, you know what? Uh, if more of the web were encrypted, then everybody would have better privacy against your boss, your ISP, your neighborhood cafe. All I, 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 that's absolutely right. The, the idea, well, and I think it's mainly the, the idea was if if you only encrypt the stuff that's important, then you're telling people what's important so that they can attack it. Uh, and if we encrypt everything, it will make life harder for NSA. That's the real secret here. This is this is uh, written in popularized by people who hate the National Security Agency uh, and want to make its particular mechanisms for gathering intelligence, which is not the Russian or the Chinese uh, mechanism, make their mechanisms cease to function. That's I, I think that's bad for the country. Uh, <clears throat> and um, if that's what it's about, then people should be a little bit ashamed of, of launching this uh, campaign rather than uh, enthusiastic about it. But the enthusiasm currently is uh, is carrying uh the day i do want to ask you guys because you're you're both um in charge of worrying about in part security at uh, dod um doesn't the ubiquity of ssl make it life harder for a lot of people it makes life harder for me when i go to the airport if i want to log on um google sees fit to say, oh, don't go there. You can't go there. Oh, no, don't go there. Uh, when all I'm trying to do is log on to the uh, site. You know, I, they interrupt my effort to go to uh, Real Clear Politics and instead say, well, you, you, you're being sent to a place where you have to log on and sit and check the box that the lawyers wrote. Uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, and then they'll deliver me to Real Clear Politics. But um Chrome says, oh, my God, oh, my God, you're trying to go to real clear politics and they're taking you to God knows where. And I just want it, it just makes me sort of mad at Chrome and less likely to pay attention to those uh, uh, complaints when there's real security involved. So that enthusiasm for kind of demanding SSL is is kind of productive, isn't it? So I'll, I'll give my just personal, but also a little bit of historical view, which is, you know, dealing with the underbelly of the web with SS SEO for a long time, we've seen a lot of bad actors who will, you know, install malware and all sorts of stuff. They can do it through advertising networks and all kinds of other stuff. But it was really interesting because in the search engine optimization, SEO space, there's definitely some bad actors. You can say there's only a few rotten apples or some people think there are, there are many bad actors. But what Well, was, and it's a Darwinian world. The, the Bad actors who are good at it make a lot of money. They do until they get shut down, or you can do the sometimes slower but white hat method that tends to be more sustainable over time. But what was interesting to me is you would see some SEOs and some bad actors working on things that weren't as helpful or were actively futile, like meta keywords when Google didn't mm -hmm. use meta keywords in scoring. And so when Google started to use, for example, speed in our rankings and faster sites would, would have the potential to rank higher, that I thought was really interesting because it was taking a lot of energy that was expended on useless things and channeling it toward things that would actually improve the user experience. And in the same way, if you look at SSL and TLS and all this stuff, it was a pretty broken system. You were paying $100 for a certificate yep. that were hard to configure. And so Google started to use whether you were using SSL as a factor, one of the more than 200 factors in ranking. So I liked that because then suddenly a lot more people were paying attention to SSL and now you can get a SSL certificate for free. So channeling people's energies towards things that might actually help or, you know, make a site more useful or, you know, friendlier or better for users. I, I, I am a fan of that. I, I, it makes some sense, but is Google really channeling toward a better experience when they say, we're going to treat you, if you don't have SSL, we're going to treat you as a dangerous site, unsafe. We're going to you know, put the mark a cane on you when in fact, you know, there, uh, there's, there's nothing that has to be protected. Uh, and, and that strikes me as you know, kind of nanny-ish. 
Well, you could say nannyish, but uh, but it's also interesting because I think if you look at the progression of how Chrome marks things, you know, we used to mark things only when we thought that it had malware, and then you can have just a small, you know, sort of red indicator on the HTTPS when it's insecure. And so I think that they're trying to think of things in stages where you get gradually guide the web towards being more secure. Now, people can view that that action in either way, but I do think that they're trying to do it in a manner. I, 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 I have no objection to what they've done so far. It's what it's it's what's on the uh, the roadmap that I think is the problem. Well, and it, it is interesting that uh, will people in ten years will they look back at just straight HTTP without any encryption and be like, how could you possibly have those postcards going around on the web where anyone could read it? It was like a you know. You could listen to cell phone conversations when they were analog or something. So, so here's the other problem I have with this, and I, I, you guys are closer to this than I am. Uh, um, SSL, if you had SSL straight from the lap, from, from the desktop to the site, it's a wonderful exfiltration route. Um, and the only way to prevent the exfiltration of data <clears throat> uh, is to break SSL in the middle. Um, and yet, Companies like Google and Facebook are turning around saying, oh, you can't break it. We're going to pin this certificate and we won't let you mm-hmm. look inside the, the, the encrypted uh, uh, corridor. Um, and so in the name of security, aren't we actually uh, creating a situation in which there's a lot of uh, um, insecurity being fostered by the spread of SSL hmm. down to the desktop level? Well, it, it is interesting. So I'll, I'll, again, all my personal take, but we have certainly seen bad actors in some countries, you know, giving certificates that were not valid certificates. Would, uh, the, the Iranians did Exactly, that. Yes, yeah. exactly. Those sorts of things. And so certain C, uh, certificate authorities either didn't take their job seriously or, or didn't do it well or got hacked or might have had, you know, relationships with other states. So, um, on one hand, you can say, okay, do we really need pervasive SSL? But I think certainly, you know, Facebook and Google and a lot of tech companies have seen those attacks in the wild where making sure that you have certificate pinning does actually protect to make sure you're talking to who it you protects, think you're talking to. It protects their customers when they're dealing with Facebook and Google. It does. But it doesn't protect, and actually it's bad for the institutions that have those uh, customers inside their firewall, right? At least that's, I, you know, I, I'd, I'd love to, to hear that I'm wrong on this, but it seems to me that that's a real uh, kind of constant problem. <clears throat> well, it, it is tricky because, uh, you know, you might have an ISP who says, I should be able to do deep packet inspection, but then we've also seen ISPs, you know, use and abuse that and say, you know what, we're going to automatically switch these ads out for different ads. Yes, and, that's right. And so, uh, so having that encrypted channel from endpoint to endpoint, uh, you can you can always have compromises on the browser or stuff like that, but it, it does give a little bit more privacy to a lot of people. And then you have to think about those difficult corner cases. Well, but I, I I do I very much worry, especially if you're talking about DoD. I mean, we all know you're not going to keep people out of your network. It's just not not feasible, much as we would like to do it. And so uh, finding keeping them from moving laterally and keeping them from exfiltrating the data are kind of your your two choices. Uh, and uh, if they can just do SSL to anywhere, uh, and you're stuck looking at, you know, all your traffic is SSL to someplace, uh, uh, you've lost control of your ability to, uh, to prevent exfiltration. Yeah, well, it's interesting because I think having more SSL across the entire web does give people privacy, you know, so that Google searches can't be snooped or stuff like that. But as you reach more penetration on SSL, it's, it's interesting to think about these kinds of issues yeah. and how they come up. All right, so I uh, we we've already started the interview. Uh, <laughs> uh, thank you, uh, uh, Lisa. Thank you, Matt. Uh, uh, but so let's go back and uh, do a reset to say what is the Defense Digital Service? What is the U.S. Digital Service? Uh, and Lisa, I'm going to ask you to jump in on that because I know you've been doing this. Yeah. So what is the Defense Digital Service? Well, we're the Pentagon's arm franchise, if you will, of the U.S. Digital Service. And that's the group of uh, folks, mostly from Silicon Valley and other tech uh, hubs in the country that have kind of come in for a short period of time to do a tour of duty uh, associated with certain government agencies. For Matt and I, that is the Pentagon. Um, and so we've worked on a lot of uh, projects that focus on sort of the citizen-facing guts of the uh, things that 
either everybody in the Department of Defense needs um, mm-hmm. or uh, specific sectors of folks in the in the uh, Defense Department need to be able to make their life a little bit easier um, by introducing best practices, best people, and best approaches uh, from the private sector. So either bringing in really smart people like Matt Cutts, the engineers that are um, extremely helpful to helping us understand how to better develop software uh, from the sort of cradle to grave or uh, folks like me, um, who we call policy or bureaucracy hackers, folks that know the agency well, uh, can understand what policies are serving us well, what policies might not be serving us well, and figuring out how to make everybody's lives a little bit easier on the ground as it relates to digital uh, technologies. Okay, so so there's both uh, there. It's a uh, do you do you do these things mostly in tandem? Uh, there's the uh, the silicon, the West Coast coders and the East Coast uh, government hackers uh, uh, always lined up. Mostly, at least that's what we're seeing in the Department of Defense's agency. Uh, generally, in fact, uh, Matt and I were just involved in a, in a, a what we call a discovery sprint for another project that we're um, rolling out with here pretty soon, in which we really needed the engineers and the policy hackers with the end users. In this case, it was a, a group of folks that work in the Department of the Army. Um, and then that way you can understand exactly what the technical challenges are and sort of what the policies um, and obviously uh, being mindful of the law and regulations, how their arms are sort of handcuffed today. Mm-hmm. So how we might be able to help with technical fixes in the future. And so how long do people at first... I, can people who are listening to this apply to yes. the U.S. Digital oh, Service? Uh, Please U- do. USDS.gov slash join. We would love to have all kinds of people who have technical experience or policy hacking experience. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. I, and how long do they uh, usually serve? It varies. Uh, some folks come in for a very short period of time, three to six months. Others, mostly the, the um, sweet spot is about a year to two years. And they rely on a real cool thing called commitment escalation, which means you might show up for a short period of time and pretty soon you're like, you know, I need to stay for three or six more months to finish up. And then before you know it, you live in D.C. So I have to say, when I when I went to, to work on uh, my first government job, I used to say, you know, the first nine months... I'm getting more out of this than the government is. And the next nine months, I'm putting more in than the government is. Uh, <laughs> uh, so really, you, you ought to say 18 months, and then you get a nice balanced contribution from people. Uh, uh, well, that's a fun, but boy, that's a short time. I mean, given given the pace of government IT, uh, it, it, you might have the specs written in, in, in 18 months. Uh, how, how do you actually finish something while you're – uh, spending a year or six months or two years. Yeah, I think it's really important to also explain we don't focus on the big enterprise things, putting okay. a, you know, we're not going to solve the DOD's enterprise solution. We do focus on taking uh, meaningful bites of, from the apple. So ways um, that we like to think of things are pilots, essentially. Mm-hmm. We try to make sure that um, Hack the Pentagon is a great example of that, and I'll talk about that here in a minute. But piloting something through our organization with another group of users is a great way to show, you know what, what we just did didn't break the internet. Yep. <laughs> We're not more insecure because of it. We're probably, hopefully, more secure because of it. Now let's figure out how to push it across the enterprise. Okay, so the, that makes sense. I mean, I, I'm, I'm skeptic about pilots, but uh, uh, the idea of taking pilots that worked and said, uh, yeah, we could just do this. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got proof of concept here. It yep. worked for this. Let's figure out how to push it across the department. You know who actually is surprisingly good at this? And I suspect they spend more than um, the government would like them to spend uh, is CBP, uh, uh, Customs and Border Protection. Uh, uh, they just they just keep innovating. If you've left the country and come back uh, recently, uh, um uh, they've, uh, when I was, when I was at DHS, we, we decided that we wanted to, uh, um, uh, create a database of people who are coming here who are visa waiver, uh, 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 uh tourists, uh, for very good reasons. They were coming from countries that had big terrorism problems, uh, I, and we had no idea who they were until they showed up, uh, at the, at Dallas airport. Um, and we wanted them to make a little reservation, give us notice, let us think about this. 
prepare for whether we're worried or not about them. Um, and uh, putting that online and saying, yes, 17 million people, just start using it. Um, it was scary as hell. And they got it done with about three days to spare on the uh, <laughs> schedule we'd given them, which was to get it done before the Bush administration left. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, thinking of something else that had 17 million subscribers uh, in a later administration and didn't do so well, it's obvious how hard that is. And they managed to do that. And, and not sitting on their laurels, they've now got systems where you can skip the line and just uh, use a kiosk and mm -hmm. use, you know, basically it takes your picture, it looks at your passport, uh, it gives you a little receipt. Mm -hmm. uh, you never have to deal with a, a human being or almost. Mm -hmm. uh, um, a, and that kind of constant, relatively modest, incremental change is impressive for a government body. Yeah, it's almost a pleasure to go through customs. Now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> or at least you, you want to say, oh, what else have they got? What's, what's yeah. new? You know, there's an, I have an app on my mm -hmm. phone that allows me to, uh, to say, no, I'm not a terrorist this time either. And, <laughs> and no, I'm not, I'm not smuggling $10,000 worth of meat from, uh, uh, from a ranch in Nigeria. Uh, and, uh, um, all of that is just, they just keep coming up with new ideas. It's, it's, a, it's very cool. So, uh, um, DOD, that's, it's harder. It is harder, but I was surprised, uh, even though the Defense Digital Service has only been around officially for about a year or so, like, one of the projects that Lisa really drove called Hack the Pentagon has been a pretty staggering success. This, this was, this was bug bounties, right? That's right. Uh, and, and DOD had never done bug bounties before. Nor has any organization in the government. Huh. Uh, and one of the reasons that we were <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the, the arbitrage between what works in industry and what government hasn't tried is sometimes the most fruitful area yes. to explore. Yeah. Sorry, Lisa, yeah, no, on. that's absolutely right. I mean, there's enough data points, obviously, in the in industry to look at, especially as it applies to the law, to say this is actually something that's very feasible for us to do. And with the, uh, the amount of networks and applications that DoD has versus any other government agency. Yeah. Um, it just made good sense for us to pilot it. We also benefit from having a secretary of defense that's extremely forward leaning yep. on these kinds of things. And um, he he was the biggest cheerleader for the whole duration. So I, I hear Google's program now allows you to disclose um, individual vulnerabilities and to get paid for them, but also to chain them into different attacks and and basically for like a year, you get to own that little vulnerability and use it over and over again and get paid over and over again. Is that, <laughs> is that basically how it works? Uh, I'm not as familiar with that, but it's kind of interesting you mentioned vulnerability disclosure policies because uh, Lisa's... Are you part of the VEP, the Vulnerability Equities Process? No. <laughs> and, Congratulations. And that's, that is definitely not something we're going to even try to skirt into in the Defense Digital Service. But what we are focused on right now is we're not advocating for somebody to hold on to a vulnerability for a long time and, and chain it together to find what other... Right, because you, know, you don't want them to do that. You, you want don't. them to disclose it. But you people think they're going to discover much more scary and maybe more right. valuable and they problems sure if they can use the uh, the chain. Otherwise, they'll hoard them. It, exactly. What were uh, so in addition to hack the Pentagon was widely successful. I mean, more than we. So could how much have did imagined. you pay out? Uh, in total, the whole uh, value, the whole contract value, was one hundred and fifty thousand, and about half of that went to the hackers themselves. Oh, that's that's peanuts. And for uh, a DoD uh, security project, yeah. you're absolutely right. Ah, and how much? Uh, um, how many vulnerabilities and how serious were they? Did you find? We had about uh, just over fourteen hundred uh, hackers that were registered, mm -hmm. yeah. and about two hundred and fifty of them submitted vulnerability reports. We received almost twelve hundred. Um, there was lots of varying. Uh, varying kinds of vulnerabilities in that, lots of duplicates. Um, 138 were, no kidding, you got to get this stuff fixed. Um, and they come sort of pre prescribed with, here's uh, recommendations on how to do that fix. And I'm assuming that what DOD really is interested in is things that are unique to DOD um, uh, infrastructure as opposed to just, I found a Cisco bug. I would say ultimately, yes. 
But in the near term, um, think about it this way. The, the kinds of things that we're going to put through bug bounties are the kinds of things we don't show as much security love to in, right. in day to day, right? We've got great, um, folks like, like in OPM. our, that, yeah. <laughs> and actually OPM is one of the reasons we, we really put some focus and said, we got to do this. It's, it's, um, it, it's obvious. These are the things that really you can get a lot of bang for your buck if you just, you know, show the public and allow the public to help you fix these public facing websites. So, so I, 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 I can't help, um, uh, saying I have been representing MedSec. Uh, I, I, and, uh, I, I, I would wonder, did anybody recommend that, uh, instead of a bug bounty, a DOD should just sue everybody who found, uh, security flaws, uh, uh to, you know, with a, a sort of shut up for the lawsuit? <laughs> Well, <laughs> there were a lot of interesting suggestions. I think um, one of the things that it's that it has changed in the department is almost how we view hackers. For the first time, I, I feel like we're really putting our money where our mouth is when we're trying to, you know, both say, hey, let's uh, go out and use industry best practices and, and leverage all these great innovative ideas from the real world. And uh, there's generally kind of a wall between a, it's almost lip service. But this was really one of those ways we, we put it out there. We extended an olive branch. Um, folks were very respectful of the, of the legal terms that they agreed to, that mm-hmm. they consented to. Um, and you know, we, we did our best to make sure everything was very black and white. And when uh, folks in the department who were little naysayers initially just saw how well these 1,400 folks um, behaved, they really started to change their thought, too. And it's sort of starting to create a cultural shift that it's, is, is a breath of fresh so air. Last, last question on this. Um, um Chinese hackers are allowed to participate in this? For Hack the Pentagon, it was scoped to U.S. persons. Okay. And you have the benefit that one of the great things about using a contractor that actually knows all of the, these folks, for Hack the Pentagon, uh, we used Hacker HackerOne. Um, the, you know, they're able to go out and, and do all of that initial vetting to make sure that the government can pay them, to make sure that they're, you know, not from a, a Chinese hacker space. I'm guessing the Chinese have their own bug bounty firm. They, they do, <laughs> actually. They have, they have a, a, a number of great uh, firms in China that focused on hacking their own thing. So let's uh, see if we can um, come back to and close on the question. You guys have been up close and personal with the IT procurements. Uh, and I know you're trying to do uh, – things that can be done in, in a relatively short period of time. But federal IT, federal cybersecurity, but federal IT generally uh, has not been exactly a shining um, light in uh, uh, the government's, in, in, in the computer world. Um, and I struggle with exactly what's wrong. Maybe it's like a whole bunch of little things that add up to the disaster. But um, there are so many IT failures in the government. And probably half the big IT programs fail. Um, and when I was at DHS, we had big failures and we had some successes. Uh, um, and I was never quite sure what the recipe for a success is. So I'm going to ask you, now that you've actually sat in and watched disasters and some successes, what does it take to make a successful IT project in the government? <laughs> Lisa and I are looking it's at each so other. Loaded. Uh, I, I'm with you, Stuart. I think it's uh, a lot of small things that all add up to being a, a really, really hard, difficult thing to pull off. And um, at, before I went over to OSD Cyber Policy, I spent a number of years at DARPA uh, working on really interesting contract vehicles. Mm-hmm. And what I would say is that as we've um, as we've seen our contracting officers get better start to know the space a little bit better. Um, and we've started to see folks that know how to actually write the requirements in a, um, you know, in an RFP a little bit better. You start to see that those are the efforts that start to succeed a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Another really prime recipe is you don't just 
buy, you know, you don't buy the same folks that are developing your tank to write your software. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a bigger problem for DoD, of course, than, than, uh, some other organizations, but you really need the software developers to develop your software. And that I think the is guy one who has of the, the contract with the tank. Also, you know, it, it, it'll turn out like a car to be 50% software, uh, or software and chips. I, they, they want that part of the contract. They do. And they're going to say, we know the tank. And that's why I, you know, I put this back on the folks that are actually writing what the, what it is that they need, the writing the requirements and the contracting officers and their team that is actually negotiating the contract. We have to be really vigilant that you're going out to get the right people to do these projects for you. I, 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 that makes sense. Well, what was interesting to me, like coming in with completely newbie, fresh eyes to the government was just how much of a difference procurement does make, uh, even in but all the laws and the procedures. Yeah. 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 And, uh, well, and, and the, the ability of contracting officers to come up with the right set of requirements. And so even in a small set of explorations, I've seen multi hundred million dollar contracts that, you know, when you, when you look at whether they worked or not, you could trace that to the, the procurement aspect of it. And, and, and because at the start, People didn't spend enough time or didn't bring enough sophistication to the drafting of the contract? I I would actually go a different direction for my initial, and this is just my personal Mm -hmm. impression. So seeing people iterate at Google, they tend to go in small teams where they can iterate very quickly and then respond to what they see and whether that worked or not. And the teams that tend to do the best at Google tend to be the ones who listen to the outside world, respond to feedback, and move quickly on that. I think the way that you gather requirements sometimes over years and try to write that in a 100-page document sort of reinforces the waterfall model of software development as opposed to the agile, let's do a minimal viable product and iterate on that. And uh, it's really interesting. One thing I will mention is the U.S. Digital Service, the umbrella organization, has got a great group of procurement folks. Uh, I almost think of them as the procurementati. And (laughs) they're, they're really pretty amazing because not only do they have the expertise to talk about blanket purchase agreements versus indefinite delivery, indefinite quality, and when you want to use which ones, which vehicles. But they also do training for contract officers. Mm-hmm. So if there's, you know, people, your your friendly core or whatever, you know, who's working on that sort of thing, you can get in touch with U.S. Digital Service. And they've done this training multiple times to try to say, here are some ways which still meet all the requirements, but will let you move a little bit faster and maybe have a little more success with procurement. So, you know, um the thing I worry about when, with, with what you're talking about, which is, uh, uh, failure, uh, and rapid response is it feels like what we used to have described to us as spiral development, uh, uh, which is make mistakes early and then compound them. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh and it, 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 the, the real risk, I, I think in, in that area is that people aren't going to change, uh, or, that the first time you say, well, that didn't work so well, we got to change it. Um, six disappointed, uh, bidders go to the hill and say, total failure, meltdown, uh, we need to rebid this thing because uh, yeah. so we can get it. Right. Uh, and, and so the penalty for not having gotten it right the first time is much bigger in government, I think, because, mm-hmm. you know, nobody, uh, you know, it's good chance that the boss that's deciding whether you screwed up was not the boss that you got buy-in from when you uh, right. talked to him about what you were going to do and how you were going to, you know, be nimble and yep. uh, make mistakes and mm-hmm. uh, break things and then fix them. Uh, I and, and so the structure of government and the, uh, all the alternative uh, players who can second-guess you mm-hmm. makes that uh, a risky way to approach the problem. Yeah. It's easy for you because, you know, you can, you can leave and go back to Google. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, it, it is understandable that you end up with some risk averse behavior when there's a lot of different people who can, you know, criticize a given thing. But it, it has been really fascinating to me to realize it's, it's not just the writing of code. It's not just getting hands on keyboard. A lot of the improvements is trying to go all the way back up to the procurement phase and say, okay, are there ways to improve that? And that's often where you get the downstream benefits. Well, and there's lots of, you know, the, the OPM report that came out from the House Intelligence Committee was full of uh, criticism for the process. Uh, and their suggestions for fixing it were, I thought, less 
exciting, but one of the things that uh, Will Hurd has said is we've got to empower the CIOs more, uh, uh, and that's good and bad, right? Uh, um, uh, but finding there, there's clearly a lot of people who know that the prob- there's a problem mm-hmm. right. uh, and want to solve it, uh, and so if we came up with a way that said we think this will in- encourage better behavior on the part of uh, 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 procurement officers who have big IT projects. I think Congress, even a Congress as bitterly divided as this one, would be interested in it. Well, and it's interesting to me to see, like I I have friends who are Democrats, I have friends who are Republicans, and across the board, whether you think the government should be bigger or smaller or whatever, people want the government that they do have to work better. Yeah, and that so that's kind of a bipartisan appeal, and whether you're at well, as long as they're in power, when they when they're not in power, they want they want it to not work at all. You're not being cynical, are you? Stuart? I am. (laughs) But but it is interesting to me that sometimes 18F or the U.S. Digital Service, by starting with small projects, can build up some trust with the parties yeah. involved, and then hopefully build a bridge to larger things. Well, very good. So um, we always ask our guests if there's anything that they're, any speech they're giving, any papers they're putting out uh, that they want to talk about or uh, uh, let uh, our listeners know about. Uh, and, of course, you should uh, tell people again what the uh, mechanism for expressing interest in joining the U.S. Digital Service is. One thing I'd like to tout uh, is the secretary, in, a, in addition to uh, doing that Hack the Pentagon pilot and committing to doing a lot more future bug bounties, um, was committed to having a DOD public vulnerability disclosure policy. It's kind of in line with the rest of the industry. So stay tuned to, for that. Then over the next few months, you'll, you'll see more information about that. And then we'll have a, a public vulnerability disclosure policy so that folks that have any kind of information about vulnerabilities in DOD's application systems, et cetera, can just send it in to us. Okay. I'm really uh, excited about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And Lisa's being modest because she's been driving a lot of that in collaboration with a bunch of different partners. Uh, for me, I am mostly... Oh, free advice, get it out before December. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> we are tracking. Um, it's, it's funny. I'm mostly trying to keep my head down and do work rather than do too many public appearance things. But I will just mention the URL. If, if you're a techie or we have one lawyer, but I can imagine that, you know, the ability to have procurement or tech-savvy lawyers would be incredibly useful too. Uh, the URL is just usds.gov slash join. Well, Matt, it, you, when you were at Google, you were the only person who actually seem to understand what the outside world was asking for and respond to it. <laughs> uh, and um, you know, if you take on that role at the Pentagon, it may turn out to be bigger even than the one at Google. Uh, uh, but uh, I, I once uh, made the joke that the administration should start a position titled the chief former Google officer. <laughs> I think you've earned it. <laughs> You're too kind. <laughs> so thanks to Matt Cutts, to Jennifer Quinn Barabinoff, to Lisa Wiswell, and to Michael Vadis. Uh, uh, this has been episode 131 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, we're glad to get feedback. If you want to send uh, notes to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com, or just leave us a good review on iTunes. Uh, uh, next week, uh, our delayed uh, interview with Ellen Nakashima will be uh, uh, will air, uh, and after that, we'll have interviews with John Carlin, uh, the Assistant uh, Attorney General for National Security, and Jonathan Zitrain. We hope that you'll join us for those and other episodes as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.